You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. The White House was illuminated in green last night to mark the St. Patrick's Day celebrations. It came at the end of a day of virtual engagements to mark our national holiday. The Taoiseach and the US President Joe Biden spoke for one hour and 20 minutes on topics including COVID-19, Brexit and the UN Security Council. Our Washington correspondent Brian O'Donovan was in the Oval Office and he's been telling me more about the St. Patrick's Day round of virtual engagements. I think from the Irish government's perspective, the main goal yesterday was to replicate in as close a way as possible what a normal St. Patrick's Day would have looked like. I think the fear would have been that the virtual nature of all of this might in some way have downgraded the standing of the engagements, lessened that diplomatic impact. But I think in general, the Irish side would have been very, very pleased with how it all played out yesterday. It started in the morning with a one-on-one virtual meeting with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the Taoiseach. They discussed Brexit, immigration, E3 visas. Then we saw two separate engagements with the Vice President, Kamala Harris, and then we had the main event, the virtual meeting between the Taoiseach and President Biden. I was in the Oval Office as that meeting got underway. It was my fourth time doing that on a St. Patrick's Day, and this time was very, very different. There were far, far fewer people in the room. I was struck by the fact that the Oval Office actually appeared a lot bigger than I remembered it because it was half empty on this occasion. Now, despite the fact that the two leaders were 3,000 miles apart, there was a closeness there. There was a connection. The TV monitor that Micheál Martin appeared on was sort of tilted at an angle towards the Shamrock Bowl. Joe Biden leaned into the Shamrock Bowl. It worked. They managed to pull it off. There was a warmth in the room, a lot of warm talk from Joe Biden about his Irish roots, his fond memories of visits to Ireland. Perhaps with another president, you mightn't have been able to pull this off in that way, and maybe there would have been some kind of a downgrading, but I suppose that was never going to happen when you had a president who is so proud of his Irish ancestry. Now, the meeting itself was quite long, an hour and 20 minutes. That is longer than usual for these meetings between U.S. presidents and Taoiseach. Afterwards, it was described as incredibly warm, incredibly positive, and at the end of it, Joe Biden told Micheál Martin he was only a phone call away. Another thing that struck me yesterday was the amount of events. There seemed to be some kind of a Zoom call or a virtual engagement almost every hour yesterday. They were coming at you thick and fast, and Joe Biden was on many of them, and they had Irish links, and it was an opportunity for him to speak about his fondness for Ireland. So I suppose that's another element of the virtual nature of these things. It actually makes it easier to have events and engagements that can be put together rather quickly. The Irish politicians may not have been able to come to Washington yesterday, but I can tell you the city felt very Irish. The fountains outside the White House were dyed green early yesterday morning and late last night. The White House itself was illuminated in green light. And Brian, lots of topics for discussion across uh, those meetings you're referring to. But of course, uh, the big meeting between Taoiseach and President and the big issues. Uh, Let's talk about Brexit and its impact on Northern Ireland. That was down for discussion. But how did that element of the conversation go? Uh, And did the Irish side get the, the reassurances that they would want from the White House? Well, certainly on the public front-facing, on-camera moments in that big Oval Office meeting. Joe Biden expressed his strong support for the Good Friday Agreement. Now, the Irish side would, of course, have been expecting that. He has said this repeatedly in the past. Nonetheless, it would have been very welcome to have him say it again in such a high-profile setting. And, of course, we know that Taoiseach thanked him for his constant support of the Northern Ireland peace process. It was interesting as well to see yesterday that there was another virtual meeting, and this was between the Vice President Kamala Harris and the First and Deputy First Ministers of Northern Ireland. Joe Biden dropped in on that call as well, I think a sign of the importance that's being placed on Northern Ireland. There was a printed readout of that call afterwards, and we were told that uh, the Biden administration conveyed their support for the Northern Ireland Protocol and encouraged leaders to continue working towards a forward-looking Northern Ireland amid this ongoing row between the EU and the UK over breaches of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The official readout of the meeting between the Taoiseach and the US President said that they called for the good faith implementation of international agreements designed to address the unique circumstances on the island of Ireland. So again, I think the Irish side would have been pleased to see this reiteration and this support for 
an international agreement that has been signed by two sides. Now, one of Joe Biden's top advisers on Europe is Dr. Amanda Sloat of the National Security Council. She was in yesterday's White House meetings. I spoke to her last night and she told me that when it came to this current row that we see between the EU and the UK over the withdrawal agreement, the Biden administration would not be taking sides. I think the side that the president is on is the side of the people of Northern Ireland. He has consistently made clear his support for the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I think we recognize that the Northern Ireland Protocol is a legally binding agreement that was signed up to by the UK and the EU. And it is up to those two sides to find a way pragmatically to implement it and make it work for the people of Northern Ireland. Uh, Certainly is watching events that have been happening over the last couple of weeks uh, and continues to reiterate that his priority is continued stability politically and economically in Northern Ireland. And as he has said, we need to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement does not become a casualty of Brexit. And Brian, another major topic of conversation was around the the COVID-19 vaccine supplies. Now, what did the two leaders discuss here? Was there a direct request from Ireland, from Micheál Martin, for additional supplies? Well, in his press conference last night, after his meeting with the US president, the Taoiseach was asked directly if he did reach out and ask for additional vaccine supply to be shared by the US. On this, Micheál Martin pushed back against the idea that America was sitting on this huge stockpile of vaccines that it could share with the rest of the world. He said that President Biden had gone through in some detail his views on the crisis, adding that he was very anxious to get his people vaccinated as quickly as he possibly could. He's then said that by the summer, the US would have a clearer understanding of how its own vaccination program was progressing and therefore its capacity of whether or not it could help other countries with vaccine supply at that point. Now, again, I come back to this official readout, the statement that we got from the White House when the meeting was over. And on that readout, it said that the two leaders committed to working together to address the urgent need for delivery of COVID-19 vaccines. And that's our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. Well, it is St. Patrick's Day and the weather is meant to be fine, so inevitably more people will gather together outside. The Taoiseach and public health specialists have asked us not to do anything which would lead to the COVID-19 virus spreading. We're joined this morning by Cork-based GP and COVID lead for the Irish College of General Practitioners, Dr. Nulo O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor, you're welcome to the programme. We're at a critical moment, aren't we? If if people socialise today because of how transmissible the virus is at the moment, are we potentially uh, getting into a situation where case numbers could surge again? Um, absolutely. I, I think uh, you know, this virus actually hasn't changed uh, from the virus that you know in 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 the uh, recent uh, months what's happened is is we now have more of the B111 variant which is actually more transmissible than the virus that we had in the run up to christmas and i think uh, the case numbers unfortunately in the last uh, two weeks they seem to have stalled uh, in in terms of the reduction so there's still quite a bit of uh, covid disease in the community and we've had one or two signals from the gp uh, uh, data in the last week or so that are concerning. So our GP community tracker, again, we can see that the number of cases meeting the criteria for COVID when people present with symptoms, that seems to have stalled. The reduction is not continuing. And when we look at our GP Sentinel practice network, which is where anyone who presents with symptoms of of a flu-like illness, they're all tested uh, for COVID. And even though the amount of people presenting with symptoms of flu-like illness has not uh, increased. The number positive for COVID has gone from 9.7% to 13.9% uh, in over the course of the last two weeks. So some signals of concern there. And uh, while I know, you know, say for instance in Cork, I mean, we in our practice, we haven't had a COVID case uh, uh, for positive for the last five weeks. And it's easy to sort of think, oh, sure, look, things aren't too bad near where me. I haven't heard of much COVID around. But COVID is there. The virus hasn't changed. And if we give this virus um, an opportunity 
to resurge, it certainly will do. And we know that this virus loves when people get together particularly indoors and I think you know we've all heard uh, you know certainly about people planning to get together indoors I mean we've been hearing about you know play dates for children I think sometimes parents will truly look there together in school you know it's no harm getting a few of them together uh, today indoors or outdoors but we are still in a level five and the uh, advice is that we really need only to meet up with one household outdoors for exercise and to keep moving. And if we do find ourselves in a place where it's quite crowded, even in an outdoor area, it's important to put on a mask. So I think you know, we've done so well in this country. Uh, things are going largely in the right direction. Our vaccine programme is accelerating. Um, uh, but for the moment, we really need to focus on staying apart to stay safe yeah. and following all of the public health measures. But are you seeing evidence too of people's support for the guidelines fraying? Because if we look at these latest figures on outbreaks, they show 205 family outbreaks last week, 31 of those among extended families. So that would suggest that families are visiting each other when they shouldn't be. Yes, and that certainly is our concern. As and uh, you know, I uh, personally I've heard about you know, friends of mine uh, with with children who've been invited. You know, their child has maybe invited to go on a play date again because they're they're going to school. Or you know, we're just hearing uh, reports of this. And you, know, we know that uh, when people started to socialise at Christmas um, among families and friends, this virus absolutely took off. And and that uh, could happen again. Uh, we've had this situation previously though related to a, a school holidays around Halloween last year um, the numbers uh, plateaued for a while in fact they even went back up again but we got it back under control so I suppose the appeal to people is to enjoy St Patrick's Day but to enjoy it safely it's a beautiful day outside get out get some exercise grab a cup of coffee but have the cup of coffee and keep walking and keep going not to be um, standing together uh, talking uh, not for people to be sitting around outdoors and most importantly for people not to be getting face together face to face indoors except with their immediate household or if they have a support bubble um, just for one more St Patrick's Day what we need to do is we need to keep the getting together by virtual means rather than by uh, in person. But it is very, very hard, as you will well know. We're over a year into this now and people will say today, for example, as you say, it's going to be a lovely day. The sun's going to be shining. It's it's just inviting us outside and people will say, well, it's safer to be outside. It's safer to meet my friends, go for a walk, have a coffee as we walk, but meet in a group outside. That's safer. What would you say? Well, meeting outside is always safer than meeting inside. But a uh, this virus, um, you know, even with groups meeting out meeting outside, the temptation with groups, I think, is is to get closer together to, uh, you know, to maybe to break that two meter distance. And currently, under level five guidance, the guidance is that we should only be meeting with one other household for exercise. So our message to people is is to uh, get outdoors, enjoy the outdoors, but to enjoy it safely. And we must remember what we're trying to do here is we're trying to maintain the steady progress so that we can continue with what we are hoping to do, which is you know, get all of our schools open, um, get the virus numbers down a little bit further. We need to protect our most vulnerable with vaccination, and we're on target for that. I mean, the over-70s, um, despite what has happened with at the pause in AstraZeneca at the moment, which hopefully um, uh, the EMA is going to give a decision on that uh, tomorrow, Thursday. But within general practice, we're on target target uh, with our over 70s. We'll be vaccinating in our own practice today. We'll be doing dose two of our, our 85s. Um, and so if we move this on um, um, another couple of weeks, you know, we're going to have a lot more of our vulnerable people protected. And we're already seeing Im- very, very positive impacts of vaccination. Mm-hmm. So we can see in our healthcare workers and um, the amount of people in healthcare workers contracting COVID has literally fallen off a cliff. The amount of people who are contracting COVID while they're in hospital has absolutely substantially reduced. We have a huge reduction in outbreaks in nursing homes. We've also seen a much steeper fall off 
and the incidence of COVID disease in our over 85s. So there are real signs that vaccination is starting to have an impact in Ireland. And we know in countries that are ahead of us, it's having an even greater impact. Okay. So there is a lot of cause for hope, yeah. uh, but we just need to keep going for a little bit longer so that we can be in a position where the case numbers are a bit lower. We've protected our most vulnerable um, and that then gives us more options for opening up society. OK. Um, because what we don't want to happen at the moment is to, to relax too soon, have the case numbers go back up and to delay uh, uh, the options for the government to open things up a bit further uh, from the 5th of April, yeah. which is planned. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Nulo O'Connor, Cork-based GP, COVID lead for the Irish College of General Practitioners. <laughs> Today marks 10 years of war in Syria. This afternoon, the United Nations Security Council will hold a session to discuss the situation in a country which the UN Secretary General has called a living nightmare. After a decade of conflict and displacement, Syrians are now facing the worst humanitarian conditions since the war began, with latest figures suggesting that 60% of the population doesn't have enough to eat. This report from Fiona Mitchell. Ten years ago, the violent suppression of peaceful popular demonstrations in Syria set the country on the path to a horrific war. After a decade of conflict, in the middle of a global pandemic, and faced with a steady stream of new crises, Syria has fallen off the front page. And yet, the situation remains a living nightmare. A bleak assessment from the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres as the world marks 10 years of war in Syria. It began in March 2011 as anti-government protests moved across the Middle East as part of the so-called Arab Spring, reaching the city of Daraa in southern Syria. It spread fast, resulting in a civil war which pitted the government of Bashar al-Assad against a range of opposition groups. President Assad has held on to power, but now controls significantly less of the country. Nada Hamzi is a Beirut-based freelance journalist. So you have the regime, which controls two-thirds of Syria, or a little less than two-thirds of Syria, and it's backed by Russia and it's backed by Iran. And then you have Turkey-backed Idlib, um, which contains 2.9 million people, around 3 million people. Then you have the Kurdish northeastern Syria, which is backed by the US. One of the lasting results of the war has been the number of people driven from their homes by violence. Will Turner is the operations manager in northeast Syria for Medicine Sans Frontieres. It's led to you know 13 million people, nearly half of the population of, of Syria to be displaced. There's still uh, about 6 million people internally displaced in, in Syria. Many of those people who live in, in very overcrowded and, and unsanitary camp conditions, particularly in, in the north of uh, Syria, the biggest displacement crisis in a century. Some left for Europe and beyond, but most stayed in the Middle East. Estella Carpi is a research associate at University College London who studies the impact of forced migration in the region. 80% of Syrians um, are, are still living in the region, in the Middle East region, and headed to the neighboring countries, especially Turkey and Lebanon. And local infrastructures in host countries are surely under strain, uh, especially in countries like Lebanon, where public infrastructure was already performing uh, quite poorly, unfortunately. A major financial crisis in Lebanon, along with the collapse of the Syrian pound, international sanctions and the COVID crisis has left Syria in the worst humanitarian situation in a decade. An estimated 83% of the country now lives below the poverty line. Arif Hussein is chief economist with the World Food Programme. So when you put all of these things together, there is no surprise that we are seeing rising food insecurity, rising hunger, not only in the breadth, meaning lots and lots of people, but also in the depth, meaning people are more hungry today. People are closer to starvation today than ever before. 
With more and more Syrians being pushed into hunger and poverty and no sign of an end to the war, journalist Nada Hamzi says it's hard to see what the years ahead might bring. I think mostly it's going to have to be a resolution formed by international powers, but it does feel like the world has turned its back or just forgotten that Syria exists. It's been relegated in much the same way that the Yemen conflict has been forgotten. I, I feel like Syria has become much the same. And that was journalist Nada Homsey ending that report from Fiona Mitchell. Former President Mary McAleese is among those criticising Pope Francis after the Vatican upheld a ban on the blessing of same-sex marriages or unions earlier this week, ruling they were not valid. The Association of Catholic Priests has called the decision divisive and showing breathtaking certainty about what God can and cannot do. Father Tim Hazelwood from the Association is on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning, Anya. When you say the Vatican is showing breathtaking certainty in their assumptions about what God can and cannot do, um, what do you mean in this context? Well, just to explain firstly that I am not a moral theologian. I'm a, a priest working in a parish here in East Cork. So I suppose we work from, I, most of us who are involved in the association work from our experience of working and meeting and just interacting with people within the parish. And that includes people and families who have somebody who's in a same-sex uh, relationship. And, and like, our experience is that, you know, there are lovely couples. And to hear something like that, you know, that, that their relationship is sinful, like that's, like, I wonder how many of them know and meet and interact with those families and those people. But I think there's a, there's a deeper issue, I think, involved here, if you don't mind me explaining a little bit about what's going on. Um, Pope Francis has introduced this synodality way forward for the church, which means, which means that issues are now going to be brought to the surface. And that is, it's coming at the moment from a synod that's being held in Germany, where the German bishops have said, some of them openly, mm-hmm. that they are going to be blessing same-sex uh, unions. So obviously some complained to Rome and that was sent to the Congregation of Doctrine and Faith and they have come out with this. So Pope Francis is in a very difficult position because you have a whole group within the church who would back what the congregation are, are, are saying and then there are others who, who uh, would have a different view and Pope Francis is trying to balance both and it's very difficult. He has said some very positive things about inclusiveness and including um, gay people in, you know, and people, all peoples on the margins involved in what's going on in the church. But to, to listen to that statement, it was so disappointing. It, it was appalling, really. Mary McAleese says Pope Francis has raised hopes, but he toes the old hard line. Do you agree? <sighs> the words come out that way. But I'm not in the position where I have to hold all the parts together. He's trying, like, in parts of the world, including especially in the United States, and we even here in Ireland, like, we would have a very hardcore group who would be very anti-Pope Francis and anti the changes and the, the new breath of, of life that he's bringing. And I can understand where Mary McLeese is coming from. And for a lot of people and families, it's very disappointing. And, but, like, does he want to cause a schism in the church, a split? I don't think he does. But, but it is doctrine. I mean, it, it, it's a reminder of, of doctrine, isn't it? And, and, and this is, like, what do you do? Would you bless um, a gay couple who came to you and said, we would like our marriage, our union blessed? The only thing I'll say to you is just two days ago, there was pieces of, of weed that grows on the ground, and I blessed them. I blessed shamrock. Now... If two people stand in front of me and they love each other and they're committing to each other for the rest of their lives and I bless Shamrock and I wouldn't bless them. No. I don't think there's a doubt or a question there. So you, you know? would. But like churches teaching on, on what marriage means and all that, that hasn't changed. But like we're, in Ireland we're going to have a synod in the next five years. It's the book bishops have announced it. And the bishops have said that they want people, especially on the margins, to be mm. part of. Would any gay person come near a church that says things like this? 
Look, this is a huge topic and I'm sorry we've very little time, so this has to be my final question to okay. you. But g given that this is the doctrine, which has been reaffirmed by the Vatican, where does that leave you and people like you in the Catholic Church now? As you've said you, you would bless, you know, you'll bless plants, you'll bless people if, if you're asked. But I, like, there's an awful difference between somebody in Rome making a promulgation and what's the lived experience of the church. And I think a lot of priests would say, like, if, if Christ was here with us now, you know, what, would, what would Christ do? He would do the caring, the loving thing. He was the one who uh, he challenged all of these rules himself. And that, Pope Francis is asking us to talk about these things you know, this is the way forward where people of, with different, and there's going to be an awful lot more of this in the church, which is a good thing. All right. It's opening things up. Well, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on Morning Ireland today. That's Father Tim Hazelwood for the Association of Catholic Priests in Ireland. Now, not quite sitting on a cornflake waiting for the van to come, but sitting on a rock on an island off the Kerry coast. Yes, a walrus, an Arctic walrus, has washed up on rocks at Valencia Island. Two metres in length, he's believed to be quite young as his tusks are only 30 centimetres or so long. The tusks of a fully grown walrus can grow up to one metre in length and the walrus is said to be in an extremely exhausted state. Among the first people to spot him were five-year-old Murren Hulhan and her father Alan, who's on the phone. Alan, good morning. Good morning, Gavin. How are we doing? T tell us how you found him. Um, so me and my daughter were um, adventuring down in the, down near the beach. We um, we kind of were inside in a little wood and um, um, near the rocks. And um, Mern spotted um, something in the water. So I I thought it was a seal at first. And we went down to investigate. And um, I took out the phone and I started recording. And next thing, it was a walrus. And um, he breached out of the water and gave us a little show on the rocks. Mern thought he was just having fun. And um, it was just amazing. Um, They're very big. Did you know it was a walrus? I, I, I at, at first I didn't. I, um, um, but within seconds I knew it was a walrus. Um, um, but um, it's just the sheer size of it. It's, it's the size of a, a, a cow or a bull, you know, in the water. Um, you, you just couldn't. Um, I, I haven't seen anything like it before um, in Ireland, anyway. Yes, I understand. They're they're rare. It's not unheard of for them to be spotted uh, in Ireland, but they're they're not exactly common to our seas. No, I I I've I've never seen one, and um, like I I spent my younger years fishing with my father, and um, I've never seen anything like it um, in 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 Irish water anyway. Yes, I, I'm reading here. Uh, Kevin Flannery of Dingle Ocean World Aquarium said that it's very likely um, that he could have been asleep on an iceberg which melted off the green right, shelf. Yeah. It's an incredible yeah. journey. Do, 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 do you know how it, he is now? It, it, um, well, I, I went down early this morning and there's there's no sign of him. So I, I hope he's out feeding on scallop and um, getting nice and strong to make his journey back. And Murren must have been very excited going back to school today with uh, with news oh, of yeah, a walrus yeah. find. Do you know what? It, it is just the best thing ever because I have two other children as well and it's their first day back since... Um, since lockdown and um, it's just taken the sting out of it now this morning they can go in and they can say well, we saw a walrus has, has <laughs> she given him a night, name by the way um she, she did she was she, she, she had two names if it's a, if it's a girl she wants it isabel and if it's okay. a boy she wants it kian don't ask me a five-year-old's <laughs> brain is just <laughs> there you go the, the, um, new, the new fungi for kerry is, is a walrus yeah <laughs> <laughs> Alan Hulun, thanks very I, I, much for speaking for speaking to us this morning. And uh, we, we've uh, we've we've some of the pictures uh, of the waters, and we'll put them up on our Morning Ireland Twitter feed as well. Thanks very much for speaking to us this morning. Well, as we've been hearing, the online payments company Stripe has pledged to create 1,000 new jobs here over the next five years. The announcement came as the company, founded by brothers Patrick and John Collison, announced that it has raised $600 million or €500 million Euro in new funding. Our business editor, Will Goodbody, has the story. Will, will you bring us through last night's announcement? Some huge sums involved. 
Yes, Rachel, lots of positive news from what has really grown into an extraordinary global success story with strong Irish links. I mean, first of all, the company has raised, as you said, $600 million in fresh funding from investors. That brings to over $2.2 billion the total amount it's raised since its foundation over a decade ago. And as part of this investment round, Stripe was valued at an extraordinary $95 billion. That's more than two and a half times what it was valued at this time last year when it raised a similar amount of cash, showing the speed of its growth. And that $95 billion valuation means it's now the most valuable private company to ever have come out of Silicon Valley and the third most valuable in the world. And as part of the fundraising, uh, the company has also announced a further expansion, this time Ireland's to be a beneficiary, receiving at least a thousand new jobs over the next five years. The new positions will be in a variety of different teams in the Dublin office, which is its international headquarters and where 300 people are already employed. But the company's also signalled that from a leadership perspective, Dublin is to become central from now on to its global growth. So that's good for Ireland. Not surprisingly, it was all welcomed by the government and by Tonishta and Minister for Enterprise, Leo Radkar, who said it was a real boost for the Irish economy. The NTMA, which invests the state's money, is involved. Tell us how. Yes, so among the several investors in this 600 million euro dollar fundraising round is the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund. That's the the 8.6 billion euro national sovereign development fund run by the National Treasury Management Agency. So it's to put in uh, in 50 million dollars into Stripe with the aim of cementing the relationship between Ireland and the company. Excuse me. And it says that this will lead to a deepening of Stripe's roots in Ireland uh, through the the expansion here, but also the provision of support for more than 10,000 Irish businesses who wish to expand into new global markets over the next five years, uh, increased investment in carbon removal technology in Ireland and Europe, and Stripe will also help advise on the development of Ireland's technology sector. So clearly it's a significant development for the NTMA and therefore for Ireland. And this fundraising round was heavily oversubscribed. In other words, more people wanted to invest than Stripe actually needed. So it could be seen as a vote of confidence for Ireland that ISAF was picked. It's a long way from the Young Scientist competition, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, remember, this is a story of two young Irish men, Patrick and John Collison, who grew up in, in Drummondir in County Tipperary, and who went to the US to pursue their dreams like so many others. And at the ages of 17 and 15, respectively, they launched their first startup, Octomatic, before selling it a few years later for $5 million. They then went on, having dropped out of college, to form Stripe in 2010 and launched in 2011 with the promise that any e-commerce website could add their payment processing service by adding just seven lines of code. And really, it just took off from there with the company landing early and subsequent investment from some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. And since then, it has expanded all over the world to 43 countries with 3,000 staff and 14 offices. It's also added a raft of new services. It's invested in other companies. It's bought other companies. And its stated aim is, is to grow the GDP of the internet. And clearly it's succeeding because last year it processed more transactions than the entire internet did a decade ago when they set it up. Now, clearly the last year has helped accelerate its growth with the pandemic pushing more and more businesses online for the first time. And while Stripe doesn't disclose revenue or profits, it does say that it processes hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions uh, from millions of users each year. So it's really a very positive story and a great one for Ireland. Thank you very much, Will. Will Goodbody there, our business editor. Now, for nearly 40 years, Fota Wildlife Park has been one of the visitor highlights in County Cork. It's a beautiful old estate, which is now home to big cats and giraffes and all kinds of creatures, many of them free to roam around. But a year of lockdown means there's now a question mark over Fota Wildlife Park's future. And our southern editor, Pascal Sheehy, is there this morning. It is a beautiful morning to be at Fota, Pascal. But how have the staff, and particularly the animals there, coped with a year of lockdown? Uh, as best they can. Uh, Photo was open uh, for, for the two lockdowns last year, but unfortunately with spiralling numbers after Christmas, uh, they were forced to close. It's a stunning morning here. Photo is a 100-acre parkland set uh, on Fota Island in the middle of Cork Harbour and it's absolutely teeming with wildlife uh, here this morning and joining me are three members of staff Declan O'Donovan as Animal Care Manager Katrina Niscanel as Senior Ranger and Sean McKeown 
Director of Photo Wildlife Park has the job of keeping the show on the road. Uh, Declan O'Donovan, you first of all, can you set the scene here this morning? It's a beautiful day. Oh, morning, yes. It's a fantastic day here. A little bit chilly, but the sun is out. Um, you can see around us the, all, all the animals are active. Uh, we've got lemurs hanging out of the trees just to, to my left here. And the, uh, the, the waterfowl are, are trying to pair up for coming into the breeding season. And Katrina Niscanel, you're... Um, senior ranger here, you're responsible for the primates, for the monkeys and the lemurs. Uh, most of the animals wouldn't be uh, conscious of the lockdown that has been here since January, but certainly the ones that you look after are. How so? Well, I mean, this morning we've come down here and they're straight out. They're very curious, the, the monkeys and the lemurs here, so they want to know what's going on. And they realise that we have nothing for them. So now they're out sunning themselves in this beautiful sh sunshine here in the park today. Um, so they're like that now. They, they will notice when people come back because they want to know what's going on. They're very curious. And you've had uh, two very special arrivals within the past week uh, waiting for the public when the public get back here. Yes, we had great news last week. One of our female ringtail lemurs here. Uh, gave birth to twins so uh, it's very very great news for us we haven't had uh, ringtails in over 10 years and they're an endangered species of uh, lemur so it's it's great for us here in the park to have have this happen Sean McKeown your job I said is to keep the show on the road here how difficult has that been over the past 12 months it's been extremely difficult um, we were lucky uh, that in December last we got a um, a grant aid of 550,000 from the government and that has seen us through the, the first three months of this year when we've been closed. Um, but if the restrictions continue into the summer, um, then that, that we're 95% of our income comes from visitors that come to the park. So we, we're totally dependent on that to, to actually run the park. Uh, and if we don't have them in here, then we're, we're in trouble. Um, and we also need the extended tourism um, and accommodation open and running, uh, otherwise we won't be busy. Uh, approximately 50% of our visitors during the months of June, July and August are um, holidaying in the area and that brings a huge amount of income to, to, to East Cork and the Greater Cork area um, and it also brings a lot of money to us as well. So without that it, 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 it makes the future of the park look very bleak. And how real is the prospect of closure here? Well, um, we, we, we have funds to keep us going till, till June, so we are hopeful that by then the, the um, uptake in um, COVID vaccines will have you know, really taken off and people will be able to move around a bit more and uh, we'll have people back in the park. Uh, what we noticed last year uh, during the summer period, we, we had our busiest June ever, we had our busiest uh, September ever, and uh, the numbers from July and August were extremely good as well. So um, without foreign visitors, the, the domestic visitors have really helped us to keep, to keep going. So we're, we're very dependent on that. And your plans to reopen? We would like to reopen in the next uh, week to two weeks before the end before the end of March, uh, but that is just a, strictly as a, a walkthrough area. Uh, so basically, it's like another park area. There's no indoor areas open. All or all the outdoor areas and the animals can be seen in their their habitats. There's no no um, indoor areas open at all. And briefly, Katrina, for you and the rest of the rangers in the park, what would reopening mean? Uh, it, it would mean that there'll be a buzz back in the park. There's people coming in, uh, seeing the animals. Um, we want to put that message across again that these, you know, we're in conservation here, so it's very important for us to put that message across to these to the public coming in again. Well, if the public get mornings like this morning when it uh, when photo reopens, uh, and hopefully that will be the uh, at the end of the month. That will indeed be a reward for all of the effort put in over the past 12 months. For the moment, from a beautiful photo, wildlife park here in Cork, uh, back to you in the, in the studio in Dublin. Defiant Met Chief fights for a job. Defiant Met Chief refuses to quit. Shaming of the Met. Yard Chief defends vigil crackdown. 
some just some of the headlines in British newspapers this morning where the front pages are dominated by images of large gatherings over the weekend in London in response to the murder of Sarah Everard, a woman who was walking home earlier in the week, and the policing of one of those gatherings. Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins, 48, has been charged with the 33-year-old's kidnap and murder. Those front pages are also dominated by images of Patsy Stevenson, one masked and one masked and pinned protester to the floor by the police. Anne Burley, well, sorry, Anna Burley rather, was one of the organisers of a vigil that was due to be held on Clapham Common in London on Saturday evening. It was officially cancelled, but several hundred people gathered anyway in defiance of the police van ban. Speaking to our reporter Jonah Sullivan last night, Miss Burley said she felt disappointed by the ensuing police response. I feel really sorry that the police put those mostly women at risk. I think the police failed those women and failed all the women in the capital. What could have been a safe and respectful and sombre occasion turned into something that, you know, perhaps wasn't those things. Um, Young women were manhandled by police officers. um, And I don't think it was a demonstration of proportionate policing. And I don't think it was the kind of response that was going to win back the trust of the local community either. That was Anna Burley with our reporter Jonah Sullivan. Vincent McAvinney is a journalist based in London. Vincent, good morning. What happened on Saturday night? Well, there were people still going to Clapham Common where there is a bandstand. If you don't know the area, it's absolutely uh, a massive park in South London. It's 89 hectares. uh, And it is the area that Sarah was crossing to try and get home when she disappeared. Uh, There were women turning up all through the day to lay flowers, including, it has to be said, the Duchess of Cambridge. Kate Middleton turned up at one point unannounced to lay flowers and, and pay tribute as well. And so in the evening, even though the police had effectively stop the protests, uh, the, the vigil that Anna was organising. They had actually organised for 50 marshals to be there to make sure everyone was keeping social distance. There were still people who felt strong enough that a vigil should be held uh, and that did take place. But the police uh, decided to deploy in quite significant numbers for a protest of its size. Uh, there was some people who obviously at, at any protest in London you get people who are perhaps agitators who are quite angry, quite political uh, and there was some chanting going on but the police decided to break things up themselves to end the vigil Uh, and they're they're being criticised quite heavily across the press, across the political spectrum for those tactics and just how bad it looks. What's been the reaction of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson? Well, the Prime Minister this morning says he is deeply concerned. He spoke to uh, Cresta Dick, the Chief of the Met, over the weekend for an explanation. So did the Home Secretary. Uh, But he says that he's going to hold emergency meetings today. There'll be two reviews, one by the Met and one by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, that will look at what was done over the weekend and report in about two weeks' time. Now, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, the Prime Minister, all saying that they have confidence in Dame Cressida Dick. That's shared by Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour opposition leader. The person sort of sounding most annoyed is actually uh, London Mayor, Sadiq Khan. He wasn't happy with the explanation that Cressida Dick gave over the weekend. Uh, and he says that, uh, you know, he, he wants a further detailed explanation. So there is some questions. She came out and gave quite a strong interview yesterday, doubling, tripling down on defending her officers and criticising those those who were criticising their tactics. But many people pointing out that it was incredibly cold here over the weekend. You know, the police always say that the weather is their best ally in any kind of protest or large group event. That crowd would have largely just dissipated through the night and instead they just acted wrongly in going in so heavy-handed. Vincent McAvinney, journalist based in London. Thank you for speaking to us. Transcripts of thousands of letters sent home by Irish emigrants are to be digitised and made available on an online database. The collection of letters from America covers a period of more than 250 years. It was gathered by a US academic who's donated his archive to NUI Galway. Our Western correspondent Pat McGrath reports. Walla Walla, November 27th, 1879. Dear brother, my trials of life are too innumerable to think of telling you all. In a temperature-controlled room in the basement of the Hardyman Library at NUI Galway, the contents of 50 boxes are being opened and examined. 
Each contains fascinating records detailing the experiences of Irish people in America. Every single corner of the United States, men and women, uh, writing back to every part of Ireland, north, south, east and west. It is absolutely extraordinary. And thousands are singing to the material runs from the late 1600s to the mid-1950s. Collected by Professor Kirby Miller from the University of Missouri over five decades, it gives an amazing insight into how people made their way in a place far, far from home. Dear Sister, I hope you will excuse me for not writing sooner. I enclose the sum of 10 shillings for you and Sarah. Sometimes the earlier letters are just filled with enormous amounts of information on an incredible range of topics. For many of the later letters, they're much shorter, but sometimes you'll just get incredible gems of insights and information that will just blow you away. Original letters were borrowed from families all over the country, photocopied and transcribed before being returned to their owners. You have to understand the correspondence changes really dramatically between, say, the early 19th century and the late 19th century. It changes because the social, economic, class, religious, regional backgrounds of the emigrants change enormously during that period. But it also changes because of the very nature of transatlantic correspondence. In the early 19th century, people wrote huge letters, but they only wrote one a year. And half of them at least never arrived. Whereas in the late 19th, early 20th century, you have the introduction of the pen, what was called the penny post. And the overwhelming majority of letters arrived, but they tended to be very short because they had to be under a certain weight so that they could qualify for such a low rate of of postage. Cascade, Iowa, October 10th, 1879. Dear nephew, I'm sorry to hear and to see by our daily papers the destitution that is likely to prevail in Ireland on account of the wet season. Work on the digitisation project will commence in the coming weeks. Brendan McSwivna of Akadov Naholskoliak Gwelga explains the significance of the collection. You're looking at letters that were sent by ordinary Irish people who went to America. They didn't find a place where the streets were lined with gold. You know, they had hard, lonely lives. And that's within what is in this correspondence. It, it illuminates the experience of our people who left. There's an enormous uh, amount of sense of loss, of loneliness and of exile. I, like yourselves, have had troubles in the death of one of my sons, Charles, a fine, promising boy of 14 years of age. Even the quickest glance at these letters reveals the importance with which they were treated. Professor Dan Carey from the Moore Institute at NUI Galway has been struck by the manner in which correspondence was treasured through the generations. Yeah, these are emotional documents. They're emotional records of, of loss and of reconnection. I think that's what, what letters do. That was the principal form of, of communication that people had. Some of these come from personal collections and some come from archives. So we have the north of Ireland, we have the west of Ireland, we have really quite a distribution. And then when you get to the U.S. itself, there are plenty of letters from Pennsylvania, for example. But as far afield as Iowa, some very obscure small towns and places that people found their way to. So partly these are records of movement and of emigration as a form of mobility. And there are an awful lot of emigrant letters out there in the country. And in time, they can be added uh, to our database and uh, it's been an extraordinary resource. So this is a gift to the National University of Ireland Galway, but it's also a gift uh, to the country, and it is a gift too to our posterity, in that it engages us with the issue of migration, which is going to be a defining issue of the 21st century. Brendan Maxivna from NUI Galway, ending that report from our correspondent Pat McGrath. Rachel Blackmore continued to dominate the Cheltenham Festival yesterday. Two more wins brought her winning haul to seven this week so far. And those wins include making history in the champion hurdle on Honeysuckle, the first female jockey to win this race. Today she's competing in the Gold Cup. Well, Keen McCormack visited her home, Killinall, in County Tipperary, where proud locals and family are celebrating her success. Oh, big fan of Rachel from day one. Just so delighted for her. Mary O'Connor is standing outside her home on Killinall's Main Street. It's brilliant for the town of Killinall. It's brilliant for her family. As you can hear, she's excited. 
during COVID it has lifted everyone's spirits. So much so, she's decorated her front window. Just a picture of Rachel coming in and another picture of her down here and the Irish flags. Just, we follow Rachel the whole time. People here are proud of what Rachel Blackmore has achieved. Local man, James O'Gorman. You're in the horse racing country today here in Killinall. Down the road you have Edward O'Grady's stable, you have Slattery's stable, and then you go into Fitter, you have uh, Mouse Morris, and you have the Coolmore Empire then as well. With Rachel, of course, it's, it's fantastic what she has achieved. She can hold her own with any of the jockeys, men or women, it doesn't matter, she's, she's so strong. A steady stream of locals make their way to and from John O'Dwyer's butchers. First, there's former Tipperary hurler Donny O'Connell. I've been going to Cheltenham for over 25 years. This is the first year I've missed it. And to miss it this year was just uh, heartbreaking. And especially when the local girl comes up and wins the big prize, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a shame. Redmond Carl, who's involved with horses locally, has a few words to say too. Rachel is something else. She's got brains, she's got guts, and that's what you need. It's at O'Dwyer's Butchers that I'm due to meet Rachel Blackmore's mum, Emer. One strip line, yeah. And a Capri Sun, is it? Its owner, John O'Dwyer, explains what makes Rachel a top jockey. Rachel is very special from the point of view that she, um, she's her own girl. You need to be tough when you're up there, and more so when you're riding these good horses and you're expected to win. Thumbs up, top. As we wait, the 155 race from Cheltenham starts on a small, tiny TV in a back room at the Butchers. As the race nears its end, Emer Blackmore arrives. It's not the norm for Emer to be watching one of her daughter's races. Normally at home, I might have the race on. I will be pottering about, doing chores around the house and I'll probably watch it from the three fences to go. But I can't watch the whole thing. <laughs> Over a half an hour later, Emer visits the local creamery. This is Arthur. How are you, Arthur? <laughs> she introduces me to Arthur Kennedy, who she says predicted Rachel would find fantastic form this week. Arthur said to me that, you know, she's going to do it. So I was saying, oh, don't put the jinx in her, Arthur. <laughs> Everyone said that there was something special there. She was never nervous, uh, even when she was starting off, being up beside Davy Russell, Ruby Welsh. She was never intimidated by him. She rode her own race, and they rode their race. We moved to a quiet shed at the back of the creamery, so Emer can do an interview in private. Any parent would get nervous watching their child doing what she has chosen to do. I, I just want her home safe. Oh, yeah. Then yes, the sir. interview is interrupted. Emer's phone rings on silent. Okay, that's amazing, Pat. It's her husband, Charles. She won. She won. What's that? She won on Aloha. Thank you. Bye. We're just talking. Your husband, Charles, has yeah. just rang. Yeah. It's now 2.37. What happened? Rachel's just after winning um, on Aloha. According to Charles, she did really well. Rachel has won the 2.30 Ryanair chase at Cheltenham. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm delighted for her. I'm absolutely delighted. It's, it's just wonderful. This win today now will, will mean a lot to her. You have a whole heap of text messages now after that last race. But, you know, what are people saying to you? Um, people are saying she's the queen of Cheltenham. In tears watching. The phone is melting, actually. I'm, I'm so delighted. I'm delighted people are getting a bit of uh, joy out of it. Uh, horse racing needs it. <laughs> There's excitement returning to O'Dwyer's. Yeah, I did. I saw that. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's applause all round for killing all's hero, Rachel. And here, they're saying at the end of this week, they'll be singing in the hills of killing all. And I'm nearly in tears listening to Kian McCormack's lovely report there from Killinall. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.